This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would invite us into the tension of what we've just sung. God, that always you are good, that always you come through, that always you are sufficient, that always you are enough. And the tension of what we read in scripture today and what we often find in life. Lord, would you invite us into that tension and allow us to live as kingdom-minded people. Lord, to see the goodness of Jesus, his glory, his mercy, and that life and the things that happen and we encounter might fall into the right place as we see Jesus and that it might transform the way that we live. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome. My name is Ryan Paulson. If you're new with us, I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. We're picking up today in a series that we've been in over the last few months and will be over the next few months in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Acts chapter 8. You can hold your thumb there. We'll get there in just a few moments. Over the last year, uh, in having kids, I've, I've taken up a new hobby. The hobby is hunting. Um, not big game, actually small, small game, actually no game at all. It's just a game to find them in the backyard. The hunting that uh, my kids and I do is uh, hunting for bugs. They love looking for bugs. And there's two primary kinds of bugs that we're on the lookout for at all times in our backyard. One is a little roly-poly. If you have kids, you know this game that they love to find roly-polies and they curl up into that little ball and my kids hold them in the palm of their hand. That, I'm sure that roly-poly, if he has a brain bigger than the head of a pin, is terrified when they see my kids coming because usually what happens is they hold them curled up in that ball in their little sweaty hand until that roly-poly meets its maker. But a roly-poly, here's what happens. When a roly-poly senses danger or in the form of a little two- to five-year-old kid coming its way, what it does is it curls up into a little ball, and I'm sure it starts praying and hoping for the best. Well, the other bug we've started hunting for is a grasshopper. Now, a grasshopper responds a little bit different to danger, doesn't it? So we walked through the grass up at this cabin we were staying at for my brother's wedding. We walked through the grass and we would kick a little clump of grass and grasshoppers would just shoot out everywhere. And my kids loved to run and do their best to try to capture these little tiny grasshoppers. And I thought, you know what? You know what? I think in life you have sort of two kinds of people. You have, you have roly-polies and you have grasshoppers, You have roly-polies, and they're the kind of people who they sense some sort of pushback, some pain, some uncomfortability in life, and they sort of, they curl up into their ball, and they hope for the best that maybe, just maybe, this wave will pass. And then you have people who, not sure why or how, But when the detours in life come, when the pain in life come, they're more like that grasshopper. And instead of just curling up into a ball hoping for the best, they're on to greener pastures and bluer skies. Which are you? Oh, what type of what type of person are you? 
Are you the roly-poly type that sort of curls up, protects, and hopes for the best? Or are you the grasshopper type? You see, I think the roly-poly types, they have embedded in the back of their mind this erroneous conviction. And it goes like this. God, if you're good, then life should be pretty level, pretty normal, pretty awesome, all the time, every time. And it should just be smooth sailing, skipping through a field. Right? So if things go wrong, God, you must not be in this. And if things don't work out the way we hope they will... God, where, where are you? And is your hand off of me? And have you abandoned me altogether? But it's these other types of people, these, these grasshopper types, where they have this conviction that even in the pain, God is present. And even in the detours that maybe, just maybe, God is in it. And sometimes even behind it where he's charting a new course, inviting them to a new direction. And I think in large part, the way that we respond to life's detours will determine how well we walk closely with our good and gracious God and the impact that we make in the world. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to start. But we're going to enter into this truth, this, this conviction that followers of Jesus carry. And it's this, that sometimes God utilizes extreme measures to accomplish extreme results. He did this in the life of the people who were in the early church. May I propose to you that he might do it in our lives as well. So the context Jesus has resurrected from the grave. He meets with his disciples for 40 days. He teaches them about the kingdom of God, and he gives them this beautiful, challenging command. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will declare my glory, my kingdom, my love, my splendor, my spirit, in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've covered seven chapters of the book of Acts, and we have yet to leave, based on the narrative, Judea. So if you're sort of an astute reader and you understand that's really the outline for the book of Acts, you're going, all right, well, when do we get to what's next, and how does what's next start to come well, in, in essence, that's today. That's today. See, the, the, the church's birth, the spirit comes, they encounter pushback from the powers and authorities from without. They encounter contention from within. And last week we talked about Stephen, one of these seven appointed servants for the church, who's dragged outside of the city, and he's stoned to death. He meets his savior, Jesus, face to face, because of persecution that breaks out against the church. Uh, Acts chapter 8 is where we're jumping in this morning. And it starts like this. And Saul approved of his, and the, his here's Stephen's execution. His brutal murder. Saul approved of it. Saul <laughs> said yes, yes and amen. In fact, can I hold your coat, it says, so you can wind up a little bit more. Saul, who we're going to be introduced to in a few weeks as Paul. 
So, so just, just a quick timeout for free this morning. If you think you're sort of too far gone that God can't use you, please, I invite you back for the rest of what God does in the book of Acts because Paul is God's definitive declaration, no one is too far gone. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, so so not even his friends, it's just devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, here's here's the deal. If you've been in church for a long time, you've probably heard this story so many times, you no longer hear it. That's always dangerous because what we just read was a horrific picture of what happens to this early church that we've been following for the last three months. I mean, think of Nazi Germany knocking on the door and are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a follower of the way? If so, why don't you come with us because we'd like to introduce you to your new home. Click jail cell, right? We have people who've been a part of this Acts 2 church where they broke bread in each other's homes, where they fellowshiped and with glad and sincere hearts, they praised God. And those people, their friends are carted off to jail, potentially to never be seen again. And this is the setting that the early church finds itself in. Continues, Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. You think? Significant events. Uh, My heart was captured by Acts chapter 8 verse 4. And they were scattered, sort of like somebody shining a light in a dark room full of cockroaches. Boom! They were scattered and they began preaching. Now, Now, here's the deal. If I am a new believer, I've just put faith in Jesus that he resurrected from the dead, that he's delivered me his spirit. If I'm a new believer, I've been at this a few weeks and I'm now getting beat up because I'm a believer. I'm not sure if preaching is at the top of the list of things I'm going to do if I'm scattered Right, I'm part of this comfortable megachurch now in Jerusalem where I'm being cared for, where I'm part of it, and then persecution breaks up, breaks out, and they start preaching. See, I can imagine scattering and regrouping. I can imagine scattering and going to a vacation on the beach, just sort of taking a few days to process what's happened. I can imagine scattering and going, God, where are you in this? And God, what have you done? And God, are you you sure? Because up until this point, we saw you do amazing things and your hand was behind it. But but God, now, 
where are you? I can imagine scattering and sulking, cowering. But scattering and preaching, it's a whole different paradigm. Scattering and preaching, those are, those are the type of people that are maybe a little bit more like grasshoppers and roly-polies. I mean, they're the type of people who say, God, just maybe you're behind this. And God, maybe you're in this. And God, maybe, just maybe, you're going to use this detour, this course correction that we didn't ask for and we didn't see coming for your name and for your glory. And you see, what you read as you go through the book of Acts is, and there's no question about this, is God uses this persecution to spread his church to the ends of the earth. And he asks you and I to be the same type of people. You see, when we encounter detours in life, and all of us will, it's not a if, it's a when. When we encounter detours in life, when that relationship breaks down, when that, we get that email that the job is no longer there, and the kids wander away, when detours in life come and they inevitably, inevitably will, we have this question we have to wrestle with and answer internally. Are we going to be the type of people who are crushed by life's detours or are we going to be the type of people who are shaped by them? Are we going to be crushed by the things that happened that weren't in our plans? Or are we going to be shaped by them? And what we see in this, with this early church that's a distinctive, a DNA part of following the way of Jesus is that following Jesus requires us, it demands us, it invites us to be shaped by life's detours rather than being crushed by them. To trust that somehow, some way, God, you are at work even in the midst of this. And what was potentially the worst day for the early church was maybe the thing that they needed most. Let me say that again. What was potentially the worst day for the early church was maybe the thing that they needed most. And the reality is true for everybody, for every single person sitting in this room, sometimes the things we want least are the things we most need. And so the question for us to wrestle with this morning is, how do we become the same type of people? How do we become the type of people who, who are shaped by life's trials and life's detours and those things that we didn't ask for and we didn't invite and we don't like? How are we shaped by those things? rather than crushed by them, because that's a very fine line, friend. It's a very fine line. And I think what Jesus would invite us to is to learn from him how to be kingdom people who use everything God brings into our life because he's using it for his name, for his glory, and for his joy, for our joy. So let me invite you to look with me at how the scriptures paint this picture. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. I think this is the key verse in this passage. It says, Now those who were scattered went about, and they went about preaching the word. So people who have this distinctive about them where the trials in life that inevitably are coming our way shape us rather than crush us. We have this understanding that God is more interested in his mission than he is in our comfort. Now, 
And that initially we should go, I don't know if I like that. If we're, if, we're, if we're processing, if we're going, really, Paulson, you're telling me that God is more interested in his mission than his comfort, and my comfort isn't his mission my comfort? Isn't that what I signed up for? I mean, when the guy called me down the aisle and I signed the card, I thought it was, Jesus is going to make me happy. And now you're telling me that's not what it is. You see, for your joy, God is more interested in his mission than your comfort. And to our detriment, churches in the West, because we've been so comfortable, we start to assume it is God's mission. They are not synonymous, friend. They are not synonymous. His mission is his glory. His mission is his name. Jesus said his mission was to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke chapter 17. Jesus said that his mission was that we might have life and have it to the full, John 10, 10. Jesus said... His mission was to heal the broken, Luke chapter 4. You know what he never said? Jesus never said, gather around, here's my mission. My mission is to allow you to gather into a holy huddle and become extremely comfortable. (laughs) Never said it. I just don't read it anywhere. In fact, as the church started to journey down that road, they go, hey, comfortable, awesome, mega church has ministries for me on every end. He said, I'm going to beat that out of you. Now leave. Throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. This isn't about your comfort. This is about my mission, he says. I love the way that the apostle Paul writes about this from a jail cell. When he says this, he says, I'm not speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Um, So I think what Paul would say to us today is that Jesus is far more interested in being our comforter than he is in us being comfortable. So from a jail cell, he goes, I've learned to be content, as in Jesus is enough, regardless of if these jail walls ever open for me, he's enough. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret as though it didn't come naturally to me, but I've learned as I've walked with Jesus, I've learned what it looks like and what it means to be content, whether facing plenty or hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things, he says, through Christ who gives me strength. So so surprising, I know he's not talking about a football game there. He's actually talking about the worst day of his life. He's talking about being in jail and not able to pursue the mission he feels like God's given him. And his declaration is, Jesus, you'll be enough even then. Even if this doesn't go the way I want it to, Jesus, you will be enough. Why? Because God's mission is more important than his comfort. Is it, is it for you? See, here's the strange thing. If you look throughout the history of the Christian church, just objectively, the best thing for it is to be persecuted. The best thing for the Christian church is for the government to say, sorry, you can't be Christians here. So so in um, China in 1949, when communism took hold and said it's illegal to be a follower of Jesus, there were somewhere around a million Protestant believers in China in 1949. All the missionaries were kicked out of the country. And the latest statistic we have from 2010 is that there's over 68 million registered Christians in China. 
And if you look at those who are still underground, some estimate as high as 200 to 300 million followers of Jesus. It's hard to find an area of the globe that the gospel is flourishing more. Because it refines them. Because they're not comfortable, they go, well, maybe this isn't God's mission for us. Maybe the mission is actually what he said it was. That the lost would be found, that the sick would be healed, that the blind would receive sight, the gospel would break forth, and the people would find freedom. Maybe, just maybe. That's what it's about. And so you see this church that instead of huddling together, they're forced to spread throughout. They have this um, sort of a common metaphor, picture that's painted. They have this battleship rather than a cruise-like mentality. I've heard it said of followers of Jesus that we're sort of like manure. Don't take offense to that. I include myself in it. We're sort of like manure. When you spread us out, things grow. But when we get together, man, we stink. And what you see is God saying to this early church, engage my mission. It's a detour. You didn't see it coming. You didn't expect it, but engage it. And go to unexpected places. You see Samaria was on that list. They hated Samaritans. They hated them. And yet this persecution, this detour that they did not expect forces them to go to the exact place that God had called them to go. So one way uh, I think we might apply this, or maybe a few, is I know it's a lot more comfortable to remain with the small group, the life group that you're in. I get that. It's what I want to do too. But maybe, just maybe, God would call some of us to scatter a little bit. Maybe, maybe he'd call us to, to go, to start, to start new groups that more people might be able to be invited in, that there might be an empty seat at every one so that his name might be lifted high. I know it's more comfortable to stay. Come on, I get it. I get it. But maybe it's not about what makes us comfortable. Maybe that's not the calling. Maybe that's not even for our joy. What if, what if his mission was more significant? Is it a sacrifice? Yeah. A beautiful one. Second thing we see in this, this passage is that people that are able to be shaped by life's detours rather than crushed by them They are people who trust and know that God values his leading over our planning. And all of the type A people in the room just went, come on. You sure? Because God, I got a pretty good plan here. Don't you think that the church in Jerusalem, I I bet the leaders were good leaders and they had a good plan. They might have even had a 10-year vision. And in 10 years, they're going to get to Samaria. And God says back to them, 10 years, how about, t- how about tomorrow? And you see, the Bible is not opposed to planning in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it invites us to do that. It's just opposed to planning in permanent marker. Where we say, God, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> And God, if you're in it, this is how it's going to look. I think the Bible invites us not to plan in permanent marker, but to plan in pencil and to give God the eraser. God, this is our plan. 
And God, if things go the way we think they will, maybe this is what it's gonna look like, but here's the eraser. And in fact, here's the pencil or the pen. (laughs) And God, you do whatever would make the most of your name and the most of your glory. It's like sort of, it's sort of like catching a wave at the ocean. See, are waves a good thing at the beach? Well, it really depends on whether you're on a surfboard or in a sailboat. In a surfboard, there are great things. That's why you go. In a sailboat, they could really end your day pretty poorly. So for us, what do we, what do we have? Are we willing to say to God, God, whatever wave you bring our way, we'll ride it. We don't know what that looks like. We don't have all the answers. And God, it may look like recharting the course. So this relationship isn't going to work out, God. How do I follow you in that? So God, my kids are going to go that direction. How do I follow you in that? That wasn't my plan, and I don't see you in it. And if you are, then you need to show me you're good, God. God, I wasn't expecting to get that pink slip for my job. But I'll put myself out before you. And I'll say to you, God, it wasn't my plan, but I'm trusting that your leading is more important than my planning. And you see, people who are able to sustain, not if, but when life's detours come, just like this early church, are people who say to God, God, your leading is more important than my planning. The author of Proverbs writes it like this. He says, the heart of a man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. You don't see a lot of tattoos with that verse on it. I mean, that's not, a, that's not like a fun one where we go, oh yeah, that's awesome. No, it's God, here's my plan and do what you want with it. Change it, make it, mold it because your mission is more important than my comfort and God, your leading is more important than my planning. So we're willing to trust you. I'm willing to follow after you people that are shaped by life's detours rather than crushed by them. Third thing I'd say. What we see in this early church is that they understand that what we often call failure, God calls formation. I wonder what gives Philip the ability to step out. I mean, one of his best friends One of the seven is just dragged outside of the city and dies a horrible, brutal death. What gives him the ability to take up that mantle, verse 5, and start going not just to Jerusalem, but to Samaria? He has no clue what's coming his way. And I think what should have been, in many ways, one of the worst days for the early Christian church, God turns in a way that only God can. And he uses it to shape and to form his believers and his leaders to be the people of God he's calling them to be. I think, as Philip watches this or hears the story about what's happened, he thinks to himself, if Stephen can have stones thrown at him and stand there and say, Father, they don't know what they're doing, forgive them. And if he can say, Jesus, I see you, high, exalted, lifted up, the right hand of the Father. And if he can say, God, this is better for me to go and be with you. If he can say all that, I wonder if Philip starts to think, if Stephen can die like that, I can live like this. And what if you you look at it objectively, what might look like the worst day 
the history of the church up to this point. God uses and shapes and makes and molds his people through. So as a pastor, I get these beautiful opportunities to hear people's journey of faith. One of the most significant things I've ever heard is people who either are in the throes of cancer or just coming out of it, and they say something like this. They say to me, cancer is the worst or the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I, and I sort of I, I look and go, you mean the worst? No, it's, no cancer is the best thing that's ever happened. I've talked to people that have lost their job and have at the onset been devastated and a few months later you talk to them and they go, losing that job was the best thing that ever happened to me. See, the trouble with the tension of failure and formation and the way that God often forms us out of failure is that we can't see it until it's a pretty good distance in the rearview mirror, amen? And so what's painful and what's hard at first God uses as a chisel on our soul to shape us and to make us and to mold us. And the further away we get from said event, we start to see, God, you're using that in your goodness, in your glory, in your grace, and in your mercy. Even that you're willing to use. So somehow Philip goes from this servant of the church that we see in Acts chapter 7, where he's serving food at tables, to being one of the most prominent early Christian evangelists you will read about. We don't know when that happens. We just know. We just know that what the enemy wanted and intended for evil, God uses for the good of the shaping of his people. I love the way that C.S. Lewis, the great author, puts it when he says this. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So it's the reason why you can look at some events and go, what should have been one of the worst things ended up being one of the best things because it's what I needed most. And God, you were present. And God, you were good. And God, you were there. Finally, what we see about people who are shaped by detours rather than crushed by them is that these are the type of people who recognize that God calls ordinary people to live lives of extraordinary faith. So that maybe, just maybe, through the detours in life, he's pushing us further and further off of the sideline and into the game. Look at the way that this happens in the book of Acts. It says, and now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them, the Christ, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. We were just told in Acts chapter 8, verse 2, that this is not the apostles. These are not the leaders. These are just the normal, everyday types of people who, when detours come, they have this approach to God that says, God, if you want to use me, I'm willing to step into the game. And he goes, you're in. You're in. Well, isn't there a leadership course I have to go through? Uh, you were just in it. Well, isn't there some title I need? No. I'm a God who invites people into the game. So come on, come on, get in. 
And what happens to the early church early on is they have this hierarchical structure that persecution just brings down. And so you have people like Philip who were a deacon preaching. Well, that's not their role. Well, persecution launched him. You have people who were just normal disciples, quote unquote, who had been under the teaching of the apostles for a few months and they're off planting churches. Are you kidding me? There's no way that could be successful. Well, hey, you're here. So, so it worked. They didn't have the title and they didn't have the training and they didn't have the you fill in the blank with all the excuses we come up with. And what this passage shows us is that God loves using absolutely ridiculously ordinary people to change the world. Sometimes it takes a little bit of pain. Sometimes it takes a little bit of a push from God to say to him, we're willing to engage. We're willing to play. Not just observe. Do you know that God calls you, he calls us a kingdom of priests? That word priest literally means bridge builder. So we have a a kingdom. We have a a group, a gathering. There's nobody who's in Christ that's outside of what Jesus would call his priests, his bridge builders, his ambassadors, his sent ones, missionaries to a lost and broken and hurting world. Not one single person who follows Jesus you will ever lay eyes on who's called to stand on the sideline. Never. Never. And we're not all called to play the same role. You can see that even in the different words used for preaching in this passage. One of them, the first time preaching is used, it's this word that's sort of like a, um, a gospel gossiping, if you will. It's, a, it's telling of the good news of Jesus around fireplaces and around barbecues and at schools and in neighborhoods. Euangeliso is the Greek word. The other word that talks about Philip is a more formal preaching. Kiruso in the Greek. And see, we're all called to be gospel gossipers. We're not all called to be people that stand up here and preach. But please don't let you, that you, please don't use that as an excuse for the reason that you don't step into all that God intended for you to be for your joy and for the glory of his name. See, People that are able to be shaped by life's detours rather than crushed by them see those waves that he brings that oftentimes hurt and are oftentimes painful as forcing us onto the field that we might be and become all that he intends for us to become. The passage ends like this, verse 6. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, which, just a side note, is miraculous in and of itself. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, catch this, so, so they, they hear him and they see the signs. It's as though the gospel message is married to and intrinsically woven into gospel living. It's as though the word and the deed are never meant to be separated. It's as though people should hear about Jesus and see about Jesus at the same time. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. This is spiritual restoration and wholeness. 
And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. This is physical restoration. This is a picture of a holistic gospel. One who declares and demonstrates that Jesus is Lord. People are healed. People are whole. People know Jesus. Verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. I love this verse. Here's why I love it. Because it doesn't say, and the disciples were filled with joy. And as they shared the word, they were filled with joy. No, 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 it's way bigger than that. It's way more cosmic than that. The whole city is better because the gospel is preached and lived. See, this is the glorious invitation, friends. That what we do here goes way out of here. It's never intended to stay in this place. It's never intended to just be celebrated where we grow bigger and we grow more powerful and we grow more prominent. No, 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 no. It's supposed to be spread. That's the intention of the gospel, that his name would be lifted high, that people would be born again in Jesus, they would would meet their Savior, and that it would be great joy, not just for those who follow Jesus, but for every single person who lives in Centennial, Littleton, Denver, Colorado, and around the globe. That's the vision. That's the picture, is that as you live out your calling to be somebody who's shaped by rather than being crushed by the detours that often come into life. The significance of doing that cannot be overstated. Because if you do that well, what this passage shows us is that it leads to the joy of all of the people around you for the joy of the city as the name of Jesus is lifted high. You see, successfully navigating Life's detours. Those moments in life where you ask that question, God, where are you in this? And God, how do I follow after you in this? And God, why? Why? Successfully successfully navigating life's detours leads to immense joy for you and for those who are around you. I pray that we would be a church that would do it really well that we would be a people that would do it really well for the glory of his great name. Would you pray with me? This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.